Turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. Let's stand. I know you've been sitting and standing. Let's stand for the reading of God's word from this great letter, the book of Romans. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Please, as I read, just follow along. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, all the nations, for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray your blessings upon the hearing and proclaiming of your word this morning. God, we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, may may you have your perfect work, your will in our life through your word, through your Holy Spirit, even today. In Jesus' name, amen may be seated. I'm embarrassed to admit to you this morning that in some 27 years or 28 years of pastoring that I've never preached systematically through the book of Romans. Now, I've preached from Romans from different passages, but today we begin on a journey that Colby and I are just so excited about. We believe that as we interact with God's word that your lives are going to be changed. But I'm most excited about my life, and I know Kobe says the same thing, that how God's going to transform us as we lead you through this study. We're going to preach through the book of Romans. We don't know how long it's going to take, but we're going to take as long as it takes to do it, okay? And I hope you don't have a roast on the oven today because it's going to be... Now, we're, we're going to do this in a timely way, but we don't want to miss anything. Uh, A gateway to heaven is what I entitled the message this morning, and that title comes from the testimony of one of many, I might add, many influential men and, and women, but particularly men, influential Christian leaders throughout history. These men's lives, these men's lives have been influenced by the gospel of Romans, as we call it. Paul's gospel. Some people say, well, you know, they got Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel. Well, this is what many refer to as Paul's gospel because he sets out very clearly for us the foundations of the Christian faith. But a gateway to heaven comes from the testimony of Martin Luther. He was a young man serving as a professor of New Testament in the city of Wittenberg, Germany. He'd been wrestling with the idea of the righteousness of God. He'd been taught that God required him to be righteous, to live a righteous life in order to be saved. He had grown, listen to me, to hate God, to hate God. And the reason he hated God was because of the righteousness of God as he understood it. Because two things, number one, God required him to be righteous and Martin Luther knew he couldn't do it. Then he hated God secondly because God left him in this state of quandary. How can I be righteous? How could anyone possibly achieve a righteousness that would be pleasing to God? Martin Luther writes in his testimony, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans 
And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me, as he says, a gateway to heaven. A gateway to heaven. What a powerful promise for us as we begin our study that heaven would be opened up to us. And as we study the the book of Romans, or I'm gonna call it the gospel of Paul, Paul's gospel, the book of Romans, may God's presence, may God's spirit move in each of us where we will come to an assurance of our relationship with God where there's no doubt. May we see and have a greater understanding of who God is and what he expects of us. John Wesley, almost 200 years later, At the time, he was an ordained minister, a missionary of the Church of England. He says, I went very unwillingly to a society at Aldersgate where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle of Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away all of my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and of death. We know John and his brother Charles Wesley were greatly used of God for great revival movements in their day. John Calvin says this, when anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of scripture. Again, John MacArthur Most, if not all, of the great revivals and reformations in the history of the church have been directly related to the book of Romans. So I hope this gets you excited. It does me. As as we begin to anticipate what God would do in your life and my life and what God would do corporately in the life of this church as we study this great book. I want to begin this morning with a little bit of background about the letter, and it's important for us to understand Not to bog down too much in this, but Paul is writing to the church at Rome. And unlike his other letters, Paul did not plant the church at Rome. The church at Corinth, the church at Ephesus, Thessalonica, Paul started the church there. But the church at Rome began something from the dispersion, but there were Christians who were there, a strong church. Paul had heard about the church. He'd even met some of the Christians from Rome. And his desire was to go to Rome and then go through Rome, go to Rome, be encouraged by the church there, and then pass on through Rome and go do evangelistic work, church planting work in Spain. Paul had made a commitment. He says, I will not build upon another man's foundation. So what does that mean? He says, I'm a church planter at heart. If there's already a church there, God bless you. But Rome was such an important church in Paul's mind that he wanted to write to them. And as he is writing to them, you know, like when he wrote to the Corinthians or Thessalonians or those other folks, Thessalonians, he dealt with specific issues that he knew about in the church. Now, Paul does deal with specific issues and some very important issues in the church, but justification by faith, the role of Jews and Gentiles in the church, 
uh, how to live and walk in the spirit, how to deal with sin. Romans chapter six, going to be a great study there. So he deals with some very important fundamental issues, but it's unlike any other letter that Paul has written. So Paul is writing somewhere around 54 to 59 AD. He's in Corinth. He's living in a guy's house named Gaius. We see that in Romans chapter 16. So he's writing a letter to a people, to a church that he's never associated with. He didn't start. And that's important as we look at the detailed information of the book of Romans. But in this book, Martin Luther says, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. And is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. I love that. The more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. So we're going to be dealing with the book of Romans. And if you're uh, kind of in and out, I encourage you to be more in than out because this is going to be a great study, okay, as we pour into this book. Again, it's our hope that as we study the letter that we will see how radical the gospel of grace is and how powerful the gospel is to change any and every life. As we begin this morning, we're going to look at Paul's greeting in this letter. It's interesting, I, when I was at the University of Alabama, I went by the uh, Ferguson Center about four times a day. Why? Because that's where my mailbox was. <laughs> I was hoping against hope. It was, uh, most of the time it was empty. Maybe there's something. Maybe, you know, I, I love to get letters. That, you know, we do emails and we tweet and we do all this kind of stuff now, text messaging. But in the old days, young folks, people used to sit down and my, my mother would write me a letter, Dear Keith. So, I, you know, she was writing to me and then the last thing she would say, Love, Mama. And she would always put, P.S., I would have enclosed $20, but I've already sealed the envelope. But anyway, she would say, Dear Keith, and it would be, Love, Mama. But in the ancient days, it was just the opposite. They started out by saying who they were. Paul, look at verse 1. Paul, he's the guy writing the letter. And you know what? As we read this introduction, we don't know until verse 7 who he's writing to. This is the longest introduction of any of Paul's letters in all of the New Testament, and there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. So what I want you to do this morning is take out your worship guide. We've got an outline here, and we're going to work our way through this wonderful introduction today. In this introduction, we will see the authority of the gospel in verse 1, the nature of the gospel in verse 1 all the way down through verse 6. And at the end of verse 5 through 7, we're going to see the power of the gospel, okay? So let's begin by looking at the authority of the gospel, the authority of the gospel. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Who is this guy, Paul? It's important that we know who he is and by what authority he writes this letter. See, most often when people attack the gospel, They attack the Apostle Paul. That is not just an ancient strategy. That is a very current strategy. You may know people, I know people personally, who became disillusioned with the Christian faith because they began to doubt the authority of Paul. They began to look at this and look at that and say, well, well, who was Paul anyway? 
How could he possibly write this and what authority would he have over my life here at almost 2,000 years later? Well, Paul tells us very clearly who he is and why he does what he does. He, he talks about his interaction with the gospel. He says three things about his relationship to the gospel that show us his, the authority of the gospel that he preaches. He says, first of all, that he is a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He, secondly, he says he is called as an apostle. In other words, this was not his idea. He was called as an apostle and that he is set apart for the gospel of God. So let's look at those three things in verse one. Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I am willingly a, a willing servant of the gospel of God. Now, again, we, we read that, we've probably read that hundreds, if not thousands of times. But what's the significance of Paul being a bond servant? He tells us that I have willingly submitted my life, taken the role of a bond servant. Now, church, let me tell you, the word actually means slave. And I know that's not a very politically correct word today. The word in itself, slave, reminds us of one of the darkest periods of our history, really the history of humanity, one of the most atrocious things that any one person could ever do to another is to enslave a person. I'll never forget being in Mobile for a wedding and was there in a museum. They had it in a, a venue there. And it, as I was kind of killing some time before, there was a, a, an exhibit there to the slaves who came into the port of Mobile. And all it was was an exhibit of feet sticking out of stockades. Feet stacked, three on top of each, three rows of feet blocked, locked in blockades. And all you could see were these feet of human beings who had been shipped from Africa into the United States of America. Church, that's what slavery is all about. And there's nothing good we can say about slavery. But Paul says, I am a willing slave. He was not a household servant. They came and go. A slave was the property of another human being. So Paul says, I am a willing bond servant. I am a willing slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my master. And when he says this, I want us to see there's a sense of great presumption as well as genuine humility by giving himself that title. In humility, Paul is saying that I don't, I've been bought with a price. Does that sound familiar? Who else has been bought with a price? Yeah, Linda has. Anybody else? Okay, yeah, there's a couple of us here. We're slaves. We've been bought with a price. Paul says, you've been bought with a price, that we're slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in a great sense of humility, he's saying, you know, I don't, I don't own myself. I belong to Jesus. I don't rule my time. Everything about my life is governed by the fact that what would Jesus have me do? I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I take willingly the lowest form of existence to serve my master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, Paul willingly gives himself to the service of Christ Jesus. Let me tell you, it was also somewhat presumptuous of Paul. It was presumptuous because Paul, as, as a Jewish scholar, knew what it meant to be called a servant of God, of the living God. See, Abraham was called a servant of the living God. Moses was called a servant 
of the living God. King David was a servant of the living God. Joshua was a servant of the living God. So who was Paul to put himself in a category with these men? Who was Paul to say that he was a servant of somewhat of, of a great master? And for the Jew, there was only one, one person you would willingly serve, and that would be God. And so G, Paul is saying, I am a willing servant of Christ, the anointed one. That was Christ Jesus. Jesus was his name. Christ was his title. Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. I willingly became a servant of Christ Jesus. Do we understand that Paul, I mean, no Hebrew in his right mind, and none of us today want to willingly submit ourselves to someone else's authority. We resist authority. But Paul says, Jesus, Jesus is worthy of my service. Jesus alone is worthy of my allegiance, my entire life. So it's obvious that Paul viewed Jesus as a majestic one. He is more than a man. No Hebrew man would want to be the servant of any other person than the Lord God. Here the apostle confesses the majesty and the glory of the Son of God. Paul considered himself to be a bondservant of the Messiah as a servant. And as his servant, he was speaking for God. That's why he says that he was not only a bondservant, look at verse 1, but he's called as an apostle. Called as an apostle. An apostle is one who is sent. So Paul was a willing servant, but he was authorized to speak the gospel of God. It's interesting that Paul had this recurring story that he loved to tell. He tells it three times in the book of Acts. And you know what it is? It's his testimony. It's his testimony. You remember the testimony of the apostle Paul? He's on his way to Damascus. He's gotten these letters. And he was going to go in there and he was going to try to meet these Christians and he was going to be real subversive. And he was like, hey, I'm Paul. And what you guys up to? Y'all worshiping? No. (laughs) He was going to go into their homes. He was going to drag men and women and children out of their homes and throw them into prison. That's what Paul did. But Paul, three times in the book of Acts, shares his testimony how Jesus said, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus never abandons the church, does he? When the church suffers, we are his body. Why are you persecuting me, Jesus said. So that's what Paul was doing. But he was called as an apostle. He was one who was authorized to speak for God. He explains in his letter to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, for this reason, this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is. What is it? The word of God. You accepted it for what it really is, the word of God. How do we know it's the word of God? Which also performs its work in you who believe. So Paul says, I'm an apostle. I'm authorized to speak for God. And he is so bold to say, when I speak, God speaks. Now, to be an apostle, you had to have been with Christ. You had to witness his life after the resurrection. And most importantly, you had to be called by Christ to be an apostle. 
It's obvious that Paul wasn't with Christ before his death, but Paul met Christ and Paul was called to be an apostle. Apostle, again, is one who is sent. He was sent with a message to speak for God. So that's why Paul talks about his gospel, but also he says he's set apart for the gospel of God. It was God's word. It was God's word. How do we know it's God's word? Because it performs its work in you who believe. Have you ever experienced that? I remember sitting in Brad Hall, room 301, looking over 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a verse the Holy Spirit gave us through Paul. And that verse says, if any man be in Christ, in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And so what does the Holy Spirit do? He impacts the word of God in my life. He performs his work through the the writings of Paul, which are the word of God, and he changes my life. He convicts me of the fact that I've been around God, around Christ, but not in Christ. And there's a big difference. So how do we know it's the word of God? It changes lives. It changes lives. And Paul says that I am called as an apostle, one who would speak for God. Paul often refers to the gospel as his gospel. We see that throughout the book of Romans. But he makes no mistake about it, that Paul's gospel is God's word. Paul's gospel is God's gospel. So the message of the book of Romans, matter of fact, all of scripture is God's authoritative word to us. His message, God's word, the book of Romans has consequences for our entire life. The way we think, the way we live, but most of all for the place where we will spend eternity. Martin Luther said the book of Romans is a gateway to heaven because he began to understand the righteousness of God. Paul's writing is not an educated opinion. It's God's word for you and it's God's word for me. So church, we need to embrace the gospel. Not because we think it's good for us. Not because we think it's good for us, but because it's true. And see, if the gospel's not true, then it's not good. But this is the truth of God's word for us. So we live in a day where people are uncomfortable with absolute truth. We're we're much more comfortable with the pragmatic side of this is what works for me. Whatever works for you is fine. We probably hear that a lot on our campus at the university. But see, we have to willingly submit ourselves, as Paul did, as a servant of Christ, to the truth of God's word. Every person has a seat of authority in their life. They've either seated themselves there to determine right from wrong, truth from false, falsehood, or we surrender ourselves to the will of God, to God's word. And we say, I'm going to receive the truth of the word of God, the authority of God's word. I want you to know from the writings of the book of Romans that we see there's one way one gospel, one hope, one Lord. And so the gospel that Paul preaches is authoritative. Paul says he's an apostle by calling, that he's set apart for the gospel of God. Look there in verse one, set apart. I mentioned this earlier, but let me just kind of review this real quick. Paul was not looking for Jesus when he was going to Damascus, but God commissioned him. Jesus, uh, as one writer says, interrupted his life. Paul was on an entirely different agenda, but God spoke to him. God set him apart from the very beginning for a gospel to the Gentiles. God had a purpose in his calling. And let me tell you, church, God has a purpose in your calling, my calling. And as I've said many times, that purpose is not so we can come and sit and soak and sour. You know, God has called us into his service, in his kingdom, to make a difference. 
to know him and to make him known. So Paul was set apart for the gospel of God, not his gospel, but the good news, the gospel that God has given him. He was commissioned by God to speak for God. In Jeremiah 23, 21, I found an interesting verse because I think this is important today. Who do we need to listen to? In Jeremiah 23, 21, where God says, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. See, in every generation, there will be false prophets. In Jeremiah, in his day, there were folks who went out in the name of God. There were those who spoke in the name of God, but God said, you know what? They don't have anything to do with me. They don't have anything to do with me. You can turn on your television when you get home or this morning or tonight and probably hear a lot of folks who have really, God could say, you know, I don't have anything to do with them. Why? They're not preaching God's word. They're not preaching the truth of the gospel. And so Paul's authority comes from the fact that he was a bond slave. He was doing what Christ had committed him to. He was an apostle sent by God and he was set apart by God to preach God's gospel, the gospel of God, the gospel of God. So there's no doubt in the authority of Paul's message because of his calling and his message is the gospel of God. So Paul tells us who he is. Verse two, he begins to tell us the nature of the gospel. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. One of the further evidences we have that Paul was an apostle is exactly what he's doing here. You see it. Peter does it sometimes. You know, John, good. When the name of Jesus is mentioned, boy, they just take off. (laughs) You know, he he mentions the name of Jesus and he immediately goes into the gospel. Uh, Not that he's forgotten who he's writing to, but we don't know who he's writing to for six more verses because he's, he's just all excited about the gospel. I was at a nursing home the other day or assisted living and this guy came up and he talked and talked and talked and talked and And finally he apologized. He said, preacher, I'm sorry for keeping you so long. I suffer from the malady of undelivered speech. (laughs) I kind of take nobody like to listen to it, but I suffer from the malady of undelivered speech. Paul suffered this apostolic disease of, I got to tell you about Jesus. I got to talk about Jesus. I mentioned him. Let me tell you about Jesus. He was declared to be the son of David. He was declared to be the son of David. Excuse me. He was the son of David in the flesh. What does that mean? That means according to the scriptures, the scriptures promised beforehand that the, the, the Messiah, the promised one, would, be, would come from the lineage of David. Look at that in verse two. He promised beforehand through his, holy, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. See, Paul wants us to know that this is not a gospel that he made up, that it was promised according to uh, beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures would be the sacred writings the Old Testament. And let me tell you, church, we've got to be careful as we study the scripture. Don't miss the gospel in the Old Testament. Our Sunday school class right now, uh, Zach Pratt and David Kazai taught last week. Zach's been teaching the majority of the time. We are studying the book of Leviticus. Why? 
Because we need to see the gospel in the book of Leviticus. You said, in Leviticus? Where is the gospel in Leviticus? Well, let me tell you, there's a sin that, problem that has to be dealt with. And God is very particular about how we deal with sin. Not just any remedy will do. Not just any blood will cleanse. And let me tell you this, not just any kind of priest can offer up sacrifice for the people. And you, you can read the book of Hebrews and it kind of explains to you the book of Leviticus. But let me tell you, the gospel, which was promised in the, the holy scriptures, Paul says, it begins in Genesis chapter three. After Adam and Eve had fallen, then God says, there will be a, a, the serpent has bruised your heel, but there will be the seed of the woman who will crush the head of Satan. Well, the movie by Mel Gibson, what was it? The, what? The Passion of Christ, the first scene in the garden, my favorite scene. That snake comes slithering through there. Jesus just pounds it. He crushed, but what did he do? That was a, a kind of a figurative thing. But Jesus on the cross broke the curse of sin. He crushed, he was bruised, yes, for our iniquities. And all of our sins were laid on him, but he conquered death. The gospel, the gospel of the Old Testament, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Paul was an expert student of the Old Testament. So once he came to know Christ, it was like a Russian friend of mine years ago, Sergey. He said, and, you know, I heard all about Jesus and I knew that y'all love Jesus, but I didn't understand that. And he said, but when I came to know Christ, it was like I was standing in a museum and I heard people <laughs> describe all the paintings and all the beauty. But he said, but when I came to know Jesus, I could see all the beauty for myself. See, that's what happens when we come to know Christ. Paul, for Paul, the Old Testament took on a new meaning. All of God's word began to point to one man, the Messiah. See, he, he was the one who broke the curse in Genesis. He is the true deliverer of Exodus. He is the fulfillment of the law and the true peace, the priest in Leviticus. He sits on the eternal throne of Psalm. He is the wisdom of Proverbs. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. And I can't begin to do it like those guys do it on the videos, okay? But all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through, how do we know that? You know, one of the greatest conversations of the Bible, and there are a lot of great things in the Bible that pique my interest. You know, I'd love to do that. I love that. But the thing that I would most like to have been, the place I would most like to have been would have been after the resurrection, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and he comes across two guys who are walking along there and they, Jesus kind of, what's going on? And so they began to, where have you been? Hiding under a rock? Don't you know that Jesus was crucified? And, but they didn't understand. They didn't know who he was until Luke 24, 27. In this conversation, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in A-L-L, the scriptures. Now, he's not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That'd been pretty easy. I could have done that. But Jesus went back to Genesis, and beginning with Moses and with all the prophets. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard that? Man, I'd have been writing down notes or tweeting and all that. You know, what is this? What is this? What is this? Writing this, taking notes here. This is what it's all about. This is it. The gospel of the Old Testament. Church, we need to be good students of the Old Testament. That's where Paul begins. 
He says, concerning his son, he promised beforehand through the prophets in the holy, holy scriptures, the holy writ. You know, again, Paul points to the authority of God's word. Those my age and older know that for years, Billy Graham would go, what? What did Billy Graham say? The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And on the authority of the Bible, he called men and women, boys and girls all over the world to repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, there's a lot of doubt about authority. Ravi Zacharias says that reason has replaced revelation. God has revealed himself to us through the Holy Scriptures, through his Son. But today we want to go back to reason. Church, we've got to trust and believe in God's Word, God's Word. Tim Keller says, all the Scriptures point forward to the Gospel, to this Gospel. They are the scaffold on which Paul stands as God's herald. Every page that God wrote before outlines what he has now declared in full color. I love that, in full color. So the gospel was foretold in scripture. The gospel is Christ-centered. Notice that in verse three. This gospel, which was promised beforehand concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, concerning his son, according to the spirit of holiness, verse four, Jesus Christ, our Lord, The gospel begins with God. It is first and foremost about God himself and his redemptive plan that is revealed in his son, in the person and work of his son. People often think of the gospel as some type of presentation we memorize and we go on campus and we present it or we go through our neighborhood and present the gospel. No, that's simply the response to the gospel. The gospel is the truth that though we were under the righteous condemnation of God because of our sin and rebellion, God in his mercy and grace sent his son, the Messiah, the promised one on our behalf so that we might become righteous in him. That's where the gospel starts with God. It starts with him, not our response, but with God himself and his initiative on our behalf. So Paul begins by saying the gospel of God concerning his son. The gospel is Christ-centered. It's about what God has done for us in Christ, God's son. Again, he was God's son, but he was declared to be the son of God. Notice that in verse four, with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now, many prophets had come and gone, but there was only one who died and was resurrected from the dead. I love this verse in Acts. This is my favorite Easter verse, Acts 17, 31. You know, at Easter, we like to put on the bonnets and nice clothes and everything. But Acts 17, 31, Paul says that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Is there any doubt about the gospel? Is there any doubt about who Jesus is or or claimed to be? No, it's all removed. This is God's gospel. How? Because he raised him from the dead. What's Easter all about? The fact that we're all accountable to God. Yes, the resurrection gives us new life, but also there's a judgment that's going to come. We're going to all stand before Christ. And so the message of the gospel is the only hope to the world. He's been raised from the dead. Therefore, Paul says, he is our God. He is our master. He is Christ Jesus, our Lord. The gospel is about a person, not a concept. It's all about him. It's not about us. 
Paul tells us the gospel is rooted in the Old Testament. The gospel is about God, especially about his redemptive plan for us. But the gospel also is for all nations. Look at verse five. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, all the nations for his name's sake. From the very beginning, before Paul even identifies who he's writing this letter to, in his introduction, he said, you know, this is a message. This is a universal message, a message for all the nations, for all the nations. Now, in that church at Rome, it was primarily Gentiles, but there were a lot of Jews there. You know, and they have the mentality a lot of churches have today, us four and no more. You know, but the gospel is a message that's presented to all the nations, all the nations. So his message was not only to good news, good news to the Jews who believe, but also, as he says in verse 16, to the Greek, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is for all the nations. There's one hope for all the nations. Let's look quickly at the power of the gospel. Paul says here, verse six, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you this morning, in some way, somehow, God has called you. If you're a Christian today, God was working behind the scenes. God was dealing in your life. And you may be here today and you're not a Christian, but God is working to bring you into a right relationship with himself. That's why Paul can say very clearly, among you, you also are the called of Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter two, verse nine. We saw this with our one another series, but you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. For you once were not a people, but now you're the people of God, the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We once were not a people, but now we are, again, the people of God. Every Christian is called out of the world, out of bondage, out of death and out of sin and into Christ and into his body. All of us are truly, if we're part of the church, the word ecclesia, church means called out ones. That's who we are. So you've been called if you're a believer. Are you special? Yeah, God called you. Are you special? Yes, God is calling you into a right relationship with himself. Secondly, we have community. Look at verse seven. To all, I love the way Paul uses that word, all. To all who are beloved of God. Our community is based on our calling, all of us. The gospel is all-inclusive. Paul is writing to Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, to those to the barbarian, as he says, the Scythian. The gospel transcends all walks of life and calls us into community with one another. The gospel redefines who we are. We're believers in Christ. We're children of God. It changes the way we look at one another, but most importantly, it changes the way we look at ourselves because, see, we are cared for. Look at that, verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, we are beloved of God. And this is important. I love what uh, John Owen, the great Puritan writer, said, the worst thought you could ever think of God is that God doesn't love you. The worst thought that you could ever think of God is that God does not love you. He has shown us, he has demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
But this was so important to the church at Rome because just within a few years, an emperor named Nero would come and he would boil Christians in oil. He would hang hang Christians in his garden in oil and use them as human torches for his garden. He would wrap Christians in lion skins and throw them to the, to the to, I mean, in animal skins and throw them to the lions. And so Paul says, I want you to know you are loved. You may be hated by the world, but you are loved by God. That's who we are. We're called in Christ to a relationship with God. We find community as we come from all walks of life and we're cared for by our heavenly father. And then last but not least, Look at verse seven. We are beloved of, who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are a lot of people who don't see themselves or like to think of themselves as saints. But a saint is someone simply who is set apart for the gospel. Someone who has been set apart by the gospel. See, the gospel is life-changing. R.C. Sproul writes about in the latter, the latter part of the fourth century, there lived a man whose father was a pagan and whose mother was a devout Christian. This young man had devoted himself to immorality. He had already fathered one illegitimate son. Yet his sweet mother, moms, this is what you all need to be doing. His sweet mother continued to pray for his soul and sought the counsel of her pastor. This young man was pacing one day in a garden where a copy of the New Testament was chained to a lectern. As he was walking, he overheard children playing in the grass, singing a refrain to one of their childhood games, take and read, take and read. So this young man, whose name was Aurelius Augustine, went to the scriptures that were there. He allowed the volume of sacred writings to fall open where it would. And in the providence of God, it fell open to Romans 13. Augustine's eyes fell on this passage. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. As Augustine read these words, the Spirit of God took them and pierced between bone and marrow to the very depths of this young man's soul. By the power of the word of God, with the spirit of God attending it, Augustine was converted to the Christian faith. Of course, we know him today from verse 7 as one of the saints, St. Augustine. Our prayer today as I close is that you would understand this gospel. It's not Paul's opinion. It's not Paul's thoughts. It's the word of God. How we can be made righteous in God's eyes, not by what we've done, but by what God has done for us through his son on the cross. And he offers each of us righteousness if we will receive it by faith, trusting in Jesus. Father, thank you for your word this morning.